Hey, Jeff, I think Jeff has an announcement. Oh, well, yeah, I guess I did blog about that. I, we're, yeah. we're having twins. Hey. Twin girls in Whoa. February. Yeah, so we have one child who's two and a half. Uh, we're adding two more to the fold here. So the children will now officially outnumber us, which is definitely scary. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to take over. <laughs> that is sort of like that Arthur C. Clarke childhood ends with the children's crusade, and it's scary. It's scary. They start marching around. They call the police on you. They, and they might have to be a little bit older before they're going to start calling the police on you. Yeah, it's glad to finally announce it because it, it's when well, twin pregnancies are riskier. Plus, we're a little bit older, so we want to make sure before we announce it that everything was absolutely going to go forward. Right. It's what you're supposed to do anyway. But we were being pretty cautious on this one. But yeah, it's it's looking very good. So cool. Well, congratulations. Yay. Two more two more ladies in the world. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. We are you, have. Uh, are you scared? Are you scared? Oh, you you should be scared if you're having children. <laughs> so yes, of course I am very scared. But you know, we I think we know what we're doing. The, the first one is the, the the unknown is the scariest thing there is, right? Like not knowing what's going to happen. And I think having your first child definitely knocks out a lot of the like what the hell is going on moments, right? Like you sort of know what to expect, and so we sort of have that in our back pocket. But then on the other hand, a little it's, bit, you know, two at once. <laughs> and and I think you even if you know what to expect, you know, every kid is different, so. You know, yeah, sometimes it's, you're it's, like, it's such a different experience. It's, yeah. it's that's the paradox I was trying to capture in the blog post that I wrote. That it's this thing, it's this experience that everybody, well, not everybody, uh, almost everybody has. It, it sort of binds Many you together, people. regardless of culture, regardless of creed, regardless of opinions. You can sort of talk to somebody about their kids. You know, I mean, yeah. almost as long as you have language in common, I guess. Yeah. And yet, even though that's the case, it's still very, very different from person to person in how it happens and you know, how, how you react to it and the cultural things around it. What frightens me is like almost any arbitrary random lady that you see sitting on the bus is probably able to babysit your kids better than you can. <laughs> you know, like you just know that like everybody that you see in real life can change their diapers and make them stop crying and give them their food and keep them. Except for you. Except for you. <laughs> right. Well, you, you learn to do that stuff. But you know, it's really one thing I didn't talk about in the blog post because it's a little bit heavy is that once you have a kid, you realize those feelings you have are so strong and they're, they're so sort of out of left field. And you realize that like sort of every war that we have when people are killed, like that was someone's baby. You know, mm -hmm. that was somebody, somebody's mother loved that child. Yeah. And now he's just, you know, well, not there, she's not gone. Russians. I mean, not necessarily true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some it could people. be orphans. It could be like the Batman, right? Or, or just total a-holes. Yeah. yeah, total a-holes. Uh, <laughs> but it is sobering to think of every cost of war in terms of not just lives, but like babies. babies. Like, it's just weird. Like everybody was a baby. Like, you know, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it, it does make war seem really, it almost makes you want to become a hippie and start to be very anti-war because <laughs> every death is it yeah. has a heavy toll. Like, I mean, you imagine your children dying. That is like the worst. Like, we don't even joke about that. Like, it's not even funny. Because that's come up on Twitter once, and Jen, Jen was replying. He's like, yeah, it's like literally it's the worst thing I can think of. I and wonder yeah. if, um, if uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a new book out that, that talks about how basically war has declined in the last few decades. Um, and the other thing that's declined is, is the number of children that people have. So I wonder if, uh, if you had like uh, 12 children, you would start to feel differently about that. You're like, yeah, there's a few extra in, in the back. Exactly. So. Yeah, you know what we need? A good war right now. <laughs> to, to increase the number of children? No, 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 no to yeah. decrease. I'm saying to if decrease, everyone starts if you having had too many children, kids, like, like, oh, you know what we need? You can a take, war. You can take some of them off to, to, to war, yeah. Yeah, that was the first well, time I... I well, well, also, the, the thing is, not only has 
the number of children been going down, but the number of children like dying in yeah. as infants have also oh, been right, going right, down. Infant mortality, that's right, way and down. also mortality of of chi women giving childbirth is way yeah. way down. Right. So yeah, that part's good. And then how about you know instead of war, we just have virtual war. We can all play Battlefield Three, which just came out today, so I'm very excited about that. Yeah. How's that going so far? Uh, oh, I love it. It's great. In fact, right before this call, we were playing with some people from the Stack Exchange team. The 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 team play support is is great, but it's hard to keep everybody together. The game doesn't really do a good job of supporting keeping everybody in the same squad. You mean people? But it's fun. Like often. I was running around, I was sort of teaching Nick Craver how to do stuff in the game. <laughs> it was kind of fun. It's like, you know, go up here, <laughs> spawn on me, and you know, it's about team play ultimately. I mean, a lot of these games, the reason they're fun is because you know you're actually actively working towards a goal with other people and if you read my gamification blog post that was sort of the point of stack overflow is to sort of i don't want to say trick but to, to get people to work together without necessarily trying to you know towards a goal and i think the best games do that for you like it's it's incentivizes working together to solve a problem and i find that very very enjoyable and and uh the, I'm sure there the moments of cooperation are awesome yeah, it is. You know, and you've yeah. never met these people, and yet here you are working towards this goal, and you know, having fun doing it. Right, and right. that's great. Um, and uh, all the great community sites work that way. It's Eric Reese! Yeah. Yay! Sorry, I just Eric Reese. <laughs> we haven't introduced you properly. <laughs> hey, yeah, let's do an introduction for our voice guest, Joel. That you're hearing here is uh, Eric Reese, who is the uh, um, associated most with the English word pivot, uh, <laughs> which which comes from the lean startup uh, methodology. You have a new book out called. What's it called? Lean Startups. The Lean Startup? The Lean Startup. The Lean Startup. Um, your student, originally going back, of Steve Blank, I guess, who wrote this very kind of esoteric uh, uh, underground book called um, The Four Steps of the Epiphany to the Epiphany, huh? Huh? which like nobody knows about. And it's just his typewritten class notes sort of stapled together and published in the form of a book. And it's, and it's kind of hard to get a hold of, and nobody's ever heard of it, and a couple of couple of uh, entrepreneurs are sort of passing it around, you know, secretly in Silicon Valley. You don't want too many people to find out about it because then they'll know all the secrets of how to make an awesome product that people want. Um, and, uh, and and some of those concepts uh, and some of your own, I think, have, have surfaced in the lean startup idea. Mm -hmm. What is a lean startup? <laughs> well, yeah, what well, certainly was an underground phenomenon for a while. Yeah. We, we call it lean startup by analogy to this thing called lean manufacturing. You know, Toyota production system and this whole kind of system of management that was about fast cycle time and building quality in from the beginning and really being close to your customers to figure out what they want. And if you look at like agile, most agile development systems, right. you know, they have their roots in this lean manufacturing approach. So lean manufacturing, but, and one of the key things, um, it, correct me if I'm wrong, of the Toyota factory was this idea that instead of just kind of building it, like the Ford idea was you build it on an assembly line and if anything goes wrong, do not stop the assembly line because that's going to bring the whole factory to a halt just fix it afterwards and so these cars would drive off the end of the assembly line and every single one of them would have four things wrong with it and so you'd park them all over in a big area and a bunch of high-paid mechanics would go around trying to fix all the things that had gone wrong mm -hmm. and then toyota said wait a minute we got to stop the line if things go wrong we should be producing things right in the first place the pr the cost of repairing like if you put the wrong wheel on a car or something then the next guy who has to put the cover over that wheel is going to have to hammer it into place and cause all kinds of expense and damage because you did it wrong the first yeah. time. You got it right. And there's no chance you'll ever get to take – somebody probably caused the problem originally. Like there's some designer or engineer you know, who, who set up the process wrong. Mm -hmm. How are you going to get that person feedback if the error is not discovered until you know, thousands of steps later and everyone's blaming it on somebody else? And it, 
it's actually really a counterintuitive process. Yep. Uh, and it's it's actually hard for people to visualize because the it just seems like it would be inefficient to keep stopping the process all the time. Yeah, like but actually, it's, it's more efficient. Huge assembly line, right? And uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that one of the like famous uh, you know lean teaching moments is they have this uh, you know they'll have people do a simple task like taking envelopes and stuffing them with newsletters you never had to do that task right you mm-hmm. have a, a bunch of letters you fold yeah. them all then stuff them in envelopes stamp them yeah Emma here at Stack Exchange has to do 20,000 of those a week you thought you thought yeah. those were automatically emailed out but he actually oh, no, no, somebody has to, has to <laughs> somebody physically fold them yeah <laughs> and if you, if you ask, uh, you know, if you ask even one of Jeff's children or you ask any child, uh, what's the most efficient way to do a task like that? Everybody has a really strong and specific intuition about it, which is if I have to do 100 letters, I should fold all 100, then okay. stuff all the envelopes, then label them all and kind of do it. We call it batch size 100 where you're passing 100 items from stage to stage. It's like classic waterfall development. It's like do a month worth of features and then we'll QA all the one month right. worth of features and we'll launch them all in one big batch. And it turns out that even for a task as simple as stuffing envelopes, if you do it in single piece flow, batch size one, mm-hmm. which would mean literally you, you take one piece of paper, fold it, stuff it, label it, put the stamp on, seal it, stick it in the mailbox, and then do the second one. Wait, you walk to the mailbox. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> well, hopefully hopefully you remove the transport batch and you locate yourself right next to the mailbox. But yeah, whatever oh, your outbox is, that will, that will send it to the next process. Um, it's, it takes you less time to do the whole task. Uh, if you do it one thing at a time instead of a hundred at a time, and people, nobody ever believes me when I tell them that, and it's it's too counterintuitive. No, it doesn't make sense. So I mean, it depends, it doesn't it depend on the task? I can think of lots of tasks where it's like, you know, if you if you if you're cleaning the house, you kind of want to do all the vacuuming at once because you just have the vacuum cleaner out. Exactly. It actually depends on what they call the changeover time of the individual process. So right. how much. Uh, context you know, right? switch. much context switching is there between, between now a big part of the lean manufacturing revolution was the discovery that if you have time to invest in your process you're better off investing in reducing changeover time than you are at other kinds of efficiency gains because hmm. when you drive down changeover time then you can drive down batch size so all this manufacturing talk, I'm talking to entrepreneurs always like, well, what does this manufacturing stuff have to do with me? I'm trying to build this great new thing and I want to make the next Facebook and whatever. Yeah, we don't manufacture anything. Right. We don't actually, I mean, we're trying to avoid manufacturing things as much as possible. Um, what I think is really interesting is is the question about, you know, all this discussion of, man, of lean manufacturing, it all presupposes that you know what your goal is, what you're trying to accomplish. You know mm-hmm. who the customer is and what they would view as valuable, what their notion of quality is. And, and so everything's going to go right. And if anything deviates from the plan, we'll correct it really quickly. But going back to the, like, envelopes in uh, a newsletter example, like, what if the envelopes don't seal? They're defective. Mm-hmm. When do you want to find that out? Do you want to find that out after you've stuffed all 100 of them? Or do you want to find it out after you have stuffed only one? Yeah. Oh, good and, point. You know, if you have the wrong postage on them, you know, when do you want to find it out? And so if you think about a process where something horrible, like something drastically wrong might happen, like, for example, nobody wants the newsletters because you have all the wrong addresses or the thing you're selling actually is not valuable at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is, when do you want to find that out? And what's the way we can get that information fastest? And so when we go into the domain of lean startup, what we're trying to do is take those techniques from lean manufacturing, but apply them in the really different domain, a domain where we actually don't yet know what we're trying to accomplish. We don't know who the customer is. We don't know what our product is yet. We only have theories. We have, you know, hypotheses. And we're trying to be more scientific about testing those hypotheses to discover what's true. Uh, anyway, that's what lean startup's all about. Cool. So, uh, I mean, you know, one part of it, I think, is the idea of not spending too much time making something until you actually have 
I've talked to, you know, gotten out there, talked to customers. Um, yeah. Well, just showing off what you've done. I mean, often you don't know what the reaction's going to be. You don't know if you've even built the correct thing until you sort of give it to someone and they try it. And I, 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 one thing that I, I constantly lecture people about, specifically to programming, is this idea of really fast turnaround on, on fixing things and improving things. Like, we, we try to deploy Stack Exchange every day, like literally every day. We roll out something that has some kind of improvement or bug fix in it. Yeah. And I, I feel very strongly about that. And, and this idea that, when, for example, like if there's an actual bug, uh, the, me the, the measurement I don't care about is like how many bugs are there. I actually don't care. I don't want there to be a lot, and I don't want them to be killing children, obviously. Uh, <laughs> really bad. Well, that's my euphemism. Maybe other people's children. That's our theme of the day. Jeez. It is. Well, that's really my euphemism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's my euphemism for really bad bugs that are like preventing major things. Like nobody can post a question on Stack Overflow. Right. Actually, that might be nice for a day. <laughs> <laughs> you, you see my point. Uh, but, but the measurement that I care about is not so much bugs and severity of bugs, uh, but how fast can we turn around and, and fix them and improve things. That's, I care intensely about that. And I'm constantly sort of optimizing for that because I feel like that's what makes things work is this, it's, rapid, it, it's this rapid, rapid turnaround. Rapid changing of things uh, rapidly. Yeah. And yeah, in fact, stuff. one of the practices from Lean Startup is this thing we call continuous deployment, which is basically taking continuous integration to the next level where – uh, like at my last company, InView, we would deploy to production about 50 times a day on average. That means as soon as you write software, you put it in trunk, 20 yeah. minutes later, it's live in production. Yeah, it's old news and, to us. Yeah, I mean, you guys, I'm sure, are doing you know, way, right. well, way even would, more advanced would, than that, I'm sure. Well, I, I wouldn't go quite that far. I mean, we do try to limit major, well, we, uh, to be honest, we deploy multiple times a day sometimes, but yeah. ideally we deploy once or twice a day. And Why? you queue up sort of one day's worth of stuff. Um, it gets tricky if everybody's changing everything, and because you, you kind of want like some time when you're watching the system after you push these things out. <laughs> mm -hmm. And if things are sort of going out at all times during the day, it's it's hard to sort of coordinate watching the system. Well, so it's it's out, that, well, let me let me give you a specific out, example. Oh yeah, please yeah, let's do it. So things that have gone wrong would be somebody makes a change, they think it's not a big change, um, you know, maybe or maybe maybe it's possible unit test, maybe it isn't. Uh, but it goes out, and it turns out this causes a, a crippling problem. Well, mm -hmm. if it goes out sort of at a random time, when sort of the person who cares most about the change is the person who owns it, you know, I mean, we're aware of the changes, but the general feeling on our team is you you own the changes you make, like you're responsible right. for shepherding them through the life of the site. So if that person isn't around, uh, we don't know. Like we, I have to go in and look at say something. Uh, not to pick on Ben, but uh, Ben checks in something. This is just a completely arbitrary example. I'm not picking on Ben. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, be Ben's Mark. in Germany, uh, so he's on a different schedule than us. So if it goes out, like say now, he's not available. So then I would have to go figure it out, right? Which I can but do. That's but a perfect. It's a, that's a perfect argument for doing it in single piece flow rather than in batch size of one day's worth of work all at once. Because if, if changes go out as soon as they're made, that's the best time for the person you – know, the person who just made the change is definitely going to be available because they're there. And, of course, it requires you to build some infrastructure. If there's a catastrophic problem with a change, you don't want a human being in that decision loop. You actually want automated tests in production that can say, wait a minute, something's gone hor horrifically wrong. Let's automatically revert that change and stop <laughs> the assembly line just like inside yeah. a production system. I think we're kind of saying the same thing. It's really a question of like should we deploy hundreds of times a day? That might be a little crazy, right? How about if well, we deploy single piece, How about single-piece flow, and then however many changes you make, you deploy that number of times? Yeah, I, I think there's 
eh, it's just a question of degrees. And then uh, as far as testing goes, I, I don't know. It's tough. I mean, ideally, yes, you, you want certainly sanity checks around, I think, the most important parts of the system that need to be working all the time. But there's so many things, like, depend on the browser's DOM. Like, how do you unit test that? Like, the, the flow of JavaScript against the, the client's browser? I don't know. Well, you guys tell me if you want. I mean, listen, I'd love to try to convince you to do this right now, but you guys tell me if this is what you want to spend the podcast talking about. Let me, like, but I'm happy to address those questions. We're, we're sort of a lean podcast, so we can, <laughs> we can change according to the no, market. We don't Let's need to, take a real quick to... vote here from our customers. And <laughs> yeah, we exactly. want to keep talking about that. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, most people find what I'm suggesting crazy. Um, and that's, and that's like totally fine. I mean, and, and actually someone's already there on the, on the, on the chat uh, saying there's exactly that same thing. Um, but that's okay because our intuitions about what's efficient for development um, all have this large batch legacy of the way that we were all trained. So, so this is a very common uh, issue that we have to fight against. And it turns out that there are, ch there are problems that you can't catch with unit testing. Uh, and so if you want to do continuous deployment, you have to build this thing we call the cluster immune system where you're actually monitoring not just your technical but your business metrics in real time to detect if you've made a catastrophic mistake. And then you can actually build an immune system that automatically rejects changes that are no good and then do the shut down the line. That only That's like the beginning of a process where every time you make a mistake then, you, it kind of triggers you to then invest in saying, well, how do we prevent that mistake from happening? And that can help you develop not just more robust unit tests, but these more in-production real-time tests that can like, take your level of fear about someone accidentally taking the site down from, you know, it's probably not going to happen to – it would actually be really difficult to accidentally take the site down because our system is so robust. That's the development environment we built at InView, and I, I'm a big believer that everybody can get there. That's not the way Facebook works, though, for example. I mean, so much of their stuff is just broken, like out of the box. Like, and All they the time, you mean it's continuously broken? Yeah, and, and to be completely honest with you, Eric, they don't care. Yeah. They literally don't care because right. – it's so not much breaking it an not important broken. part of the system, right? It's not breaking the ability of someone's grandmother to upload a photo to the site. And that's kind of the way I look at this. Although, like, based on the email we get, it probably oh does occasionally. Yeah, no, no, but it's for 99.99%, yeah, yeah, yeah. it always fulfills the core function well, of, I can things, go on and stalk pretty girls that I know. These things are complicated enough. Like, these systems are large enough and complicated enough, I have enough moving parts. And the area of code that you're working on is usually so small that uh, it starts to behave a lot more biologically than than uh, than the programs of, of the old days. Like, you know, the programs oh, yeah. that you wrote in, in computer science class 10 years ago, <laughs> you would make one mistake, you'd leave out one semicolon, it just would completely not work, and it would be catastrophic. And, and nowadays, it's like you could leave out a semicolon, the whole thing could not compile. Even if it deploys, now you have one tiny little section on the web page that doesn't display. Everything else works works fine. In other words, we build these systems that are so large that they become relatively immune to large scale problems. Not always, but they start. Well, but to hold on, but that uh, the analogy of the of yeah. an immune system of like that actually, I think, is right. is because our systems are so organic. It's actually yep. helpful if like if the person who wrote. It's the same logic that, that makes unit testing a win if you do it right. The person who wrote the feature can also then say, well, what's my immune response automatic thing that happens in production to tell me this feature stops working? And as soon as it stops working, the moment someone made the mistake, yeah. in 20 minutes of them making the mistake, we can immediately say, hey, did yeah. you know you, you broke this unrelated thing way over here? And then Our like, immune oh, system is that. an email address, team at stackoverflow.com. <laughs> That's right. You're making your, you're making your customers do it for you. That's okay. They're really, not, those are not our customers. Can... Wait, 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 wait. Those are not oh, our sorry. customers. Yeah. <laughs> If you're not paying, you're not the customer, you're the product. 
<laughs> I see. You have your product do it for you. Yeah, kind of. I mean, this is a community-generated uh, site, and part of what yeah. the community does is they tell us when we're screwing up. I, I, and I bet they don't mind catching new problems. What, what probably drives them crazy Jeez, is when you make it. the same mistake over and over again. Uh, but that, you know, that, to be honest, Eric, let me clarify on that because that surprised me. Because one of my big things that I get pissed off about is when we have bugs that come back. And yeah. i got to be honest with you, that is so rare. It happens, but huh? regressions are just not that common. Like, it's, I think, to Joel's point, like, the system is so large and complex that, like, when you have problems, they're almost always like new problems you haven't seen before. We have we do have a different situation actually which I, I have now seen um, since one of the products that I sell these days uh, is a 10 year old code base or an 11 year old Geez, heck, 15 years, depending on how far you go back. But a very, very old code base. And it's gotten to the point where nobody who's working on it really knows what it does or what it's supposed to do. And they will make changes that will break things that we fixed years and years ago, and they won't even know. Like, they'll, they'll That's do, a good argument. And it won't be something that, a, that an automated test will necessarily get. Uh, like, for example, you know, we just went through an episode where some, let's say, relatively new people to the team uh, made some changes that would have improved the product in UI design, but would have confused established users and they really weren't the, the right bang for the buck. So it, 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 at one point, they rearranged six fields on the screen into a different order that they thought was more logical. And I was like, you, you guys don't know this because this is before you started working here, but we <laughs> had a two-day smash-down huge fight over the order of those six fields. And it turns out that this is the only possible order those six fields can be in. And I had no friggin' idea why. But it was a two-day fight, I remember, so please don't just randomly reorder six fields. I don't know if I would have thought to unit test the order of those six fields, and if anybody then saw that unit test, they'd be like, oh, well, that's obviously obsolete because I'm moving them around. So um, one thing that Stack doesn't have is it's still got the original people working on it that worked on it from the beginning. And, um, yeah, and we still kind of know the original, you know, the intention, why things work the way they work. And, and, and there is no I, – I, I think that there is still uh, a lot of – fiction around this idea that you can have unit tests that enforce uh, why you design things the way that they were, um, or that, that anything can be, can be written in, in the form of documentation about how things work certain ways. But um, I do agree with Eric that you should fix your pain points. I'm, oh, I'm yeah. very adamant about like where we're seeing pain. Like, and I define pain as like things people are complaining about, of course. Um, and, and of course, like problems that keep recurring. Those definitely, like, we need to have a deeper process around, like, why does this problem keep happening? That This is starting to piss me off. But honestly, yep. like, a lot of those aren't our problem. Like, one problem that came back that wasn't our fault, there's a bug in .NET 4.0 that causes, basically causes the server to go offline, one of our web tier servers, which is kind of traumatic. <laughs> it just came back because what happened is we got a hot fix from Microsoft to fix this bug in .NET 4.0. It only happens under a really heavy load uh, on websites. And they did a Windows Windows update, and the Windows update overwrote the fix, the hot fix that they had given us, right? So that's an example of, yes, that, that problem sucks. Uh, and it's also very traumatic because it takes a web server out of rotation. So that kind of stuff I feel very strongly about. But for, for us, like, usually those problems are not our problems. I don't see a lot of recurring problems. But, but where I do, I totally agree with you that you know, put a process in place. Why does this problem keep happening? What can we do to, you know, make it never happen again? I'm totally down with that. So, and um, yeah. one final clarification. We do yeah. actually deploy multiple times per day. I didn't mean literally once per day. I, no, it's I, not I like tend we have a like, 2 o'clock deploy or anything. We, yeah, I, I tend to like deploying, like, at night Pacific, for sure, every day. And then beyond that, people can deploy, like, as they feel it's necessary. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if I would support hundreds of times a day, but... 
we have certainly have had days where we've deployed 12 to possibly 20 times. So I just want to be clear that I'm not a strict one deployment a day guy. So I'm, we're kind of meeting in the middle there. Hey, yeah, Jeff, you know, I, the, can, I can live with that. The, Jeff, I, I just told the core team, the fact that you even know about that hotfix means I'm adding 30, 30 minutes onto your vacation at the end. You're <laughs> <laughs> supposed to be on vacation. You're not supposed to know about that shit. Well, it came up. It came yeah. up in Battlefield actually, because in the voice chat they they were like, "Oh my god, that stupid hash table thing is oh, back." Okay. And I was like, "Everybody groaned collectively, right?" It's like, "Why does this keep happening?" Jeff is officially on vacation, so every time he he, he dabbles see? in work, I, I add time onto the end of his vacation. See, yeah, yeah, you're um, you're fired from being able to come back to work. <laughs> uh, I want to talk a little bit more about lean startups because I have a criticism of the lean startups. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> It's not a criticism of lean startups, actually. It's that uh, um, there's been this combination of lean startups. Oh, boy. Somebody, somebody's going to know who I'm talking about, including you, Eric. This combination of lean startups combined with the fact that any startup can get $750,000 in funding instantly just by like <laughs> batting their eyelashes means that there's a lot of kind of startups that are pivoting an awful lot. Yeah, <laughs> or they're failing to pivot, or they're essentially, it's, or they're it's, just awful ideas from the beginning. But it's like, no, no, no we can yeah. take five hundred thousand dollars that someone will give us, yeah. and we'll we'll just figure out we'll a product on, later. We'll work on it for three. Or let's take I'll take a very public example, just based on the publicly available information. Was this startup called Color, which received yeah. I think forty million, fifty million in Sequoia like funding, um, based on uh, you know kind of a business plan and a little app that they had done, sort of like Marimba yeah. ten years later. Uh-huh. Um, and having this sort of all-star team of three very famous people, two of whom quit, uh, and their app was just not a good app, and nobody used it, and didn't work, didn't have traction, didn't there was no market there, um, and I think they've pivoted at least once to some completely different idea that is also not that original. And then you start wondering, is this team going to come up with a good idea or not? Mm-hmm. And and you'll you'll kind of never know. I, the word pivot, I think, is used yeah. to mean change business plan rather than. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a mess. I mean, and look, we're going through the summer years of entrepreneurship right now. And, and I, you know, I always say when my public talks like winter is coming. Yeah. So, you know, this, this some of this nonsense is going to go away because it is <laughs> it's cyclical. It's the same uh, thing you say to the Occupy Wall Street people. It's like, it's a lot of fun now, but just wait until it's 12 yeah, degrees you think below. It's, you think it's bad now. It can get it could get a lot worse. <laughs> and look, and, and the startup economy cannot remain divorced from the real economy indefinitely. So, you know. We we got to get involved with those issues, but but on the specific issue of people overusing the word pivot, I, I yeah. just want to say first of all, for the record, what is a pivot? A yeah. pivot is a change in strategy without a change in vision. Hmm. So that's the first thing. People who are pivoting all the time um, are not accomplishing anything because they're just like making changes to their product or just kind of randomly jumping around. Just doing it's a different product every time. Yeah, just doing something different. That. It's like well, that that's yeah. just you're either just optimizing your existing product or you're like giving up. You know, giving up on your vision and just hopping to a new one every two seconds. You can't learn anything. You know, the heart right. of lean startup is all about learning. You can't hey, learn anything if you don't have a specific hypothesis. You well, or you've thrown away all this learning essentially, and now, yeah, now exactly. you're kind of casting around for something new one. else. And, and then, you know, we use the analogy of the pivot is supposed to be one foot anchored, one yeah. other moving at a time. So it's always rooted in what you've learned, what you've, what you've learned so far. And if you look at the PayPal, or the Groupon, or you know Microsoft, or any of these famous stories of companies that, that started in doing one thing and wound up doing something else, it always kind of makes sense in retrospect. You can kind of see the thread of vision. But if you mm-hmm. were there at the time, my favorite is, is Groupon right now, because Groupon, when they finally made the pivot into social commerce, their MVP, their minimum viable product was uh, they, they set up a WordPress blog called Groupon, and they offered a coupon for two-for-one pizza off the pizza restaurant in the lobby of their building. Okay. 20 people redeemed the coupons. They gave away 20 free pizzas. 
and they like literally were on their laptop in Apple Mail, like making the PDFs, individually emailed all 20 people their coupons. <laughs> and I always tell people, like, I know if you were there, I'm not smart enough, but if you were there, you would have been like, oh, 20 free pizzas? Obviously, fastest company in history to have a billion dollars in sales. <laughs> of course, like, what a good idea. It's so obvious. But it's only because they had the year of failure building that crappy thing called The Point that didn't work oh. that they really understood how hard it is to get 20 people to do well, basically anything at all, let right. alone go collect the 20 pizzas. And that put them on a path to, to – and it kind of makes sense in retrospect. You kind of see, oh, they were doing this petition social advocacy thing and now they're doing social commerce. You can kind of see the thread. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, if you were there in the moment, it, it can be hard to understand what's happening. If you're outside of it, it doesn't, there doesn't, doesn't know, tol- you, I mean there doesn't always have to be a thread. Like the famous examples are like uh, 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 Blogger, which started out as Pyro Labs, which is doing project management, but then they needed an internal blog tool, yeah. so they threw something together. And uh, Fog Creek, which was doing consulting, but we needed bug tracking. We had that thing. We started selling it. And the, the pivot there was just that you're doing three things at once, and you pick the one that's actually really successful, and then you kind of move all your resources behind that. Yeah. Uh, and that may feel like a pivot because now you're going in a different direction. But essentially, you're that's just right. choosing winners. You're doing, you do several things early on. You pick the ones that win. Right, but, but at least there you're doing things that are ex- exactly. in your expertise that you already like right. have experience doing. The, there are companies that go bizarre and are just like, okay, what we're doing isn't working right now. Let's just create something entirely different that we have no experience or no expertise and no or, tie or no to. reason for winning. Yeah, and then and nobody can stop them from doing that because it sounds cool. <laughs> right, as long <laughs> as it got, sounds cool, it's got the, it's got I, the I pivot think... word behind it, and and because they have money, like nobody can tell them what to do or what not to do because they've raised enough money to keep going for another two years. Well, and the money thing is really a problem because I call it success theater, which mm-hmm. is the work you do to make yourself seem successful. <laughs> and, and every ounce of energy that we as an ecosystem invest in success theater is an, is an ounce of energy we could have invested in doing real work for customers to actually creating value. And uh-huh. we chose not to to the success theater. So, like recruiting your wait, board wait, wait, of advisors. Define, define success theater. What's an example? So, so success theater, like the reason that certain people are able to raise a ton of money for nothing, for like having no idea, no plan, no like – no product, no traction, no nothing, but they can still raise these these ridiculous rounds. Oh, um, I see. Is because okay. they're able to put on a show for investors that make them look and feel like a superstar success that these investors have seen in the past. It's it's a bug in the fact that most VCs are doing pattern recognition, and pattern mm-hmm. recognition is just a you know fancy word for bias. Yeah. They have a bias for a certain set of people that kind of look and feel and smell and and talk like a visionary success so they're they're looking for the guy who looks like steve jobs looked when he first walked in his office or larry and sergey or any of these famous entrepreneurs so if you have the look and if you know how to put on the right kind of show you can raise a lot of money uh basically for free and isn't that based on track record i mean so if you say you had three successful startups or two or whatever the number is I mean, isn't it fair to say, okay, this person has a track record of success? It may just I mean, be that you worked for Facebook. Yeah. All right. You could have gotten lucky. Fine. Okay. Well, that's why the data point should be bigger than one. But if someone's yeah. had two, maybe three successful startups, isn't that a reasonable argument to, yeah. to use? Well, well it also depends what's a successful startup and what was their role in it. I well, mean, that's what, but wait a minute. That's what happened to Color, essentially, is that they said, is that Sequoia said, I don't care how stupid your idea is or successful. Yeah, you guys I want to give you so much money that I get to invest in all your future startups. Like, I'm already invested in them. And you'll just sit there and you'll just knock out idea after idea after idea, and one of them will eventually work. And then I don't have to invest then because I will have prepaid for my ownership of all your future startups. 
sort of just because something is something, so just because a, a process or a system has bias in it doesn't mean that it's a hundred percent unfair. I mean, it's still fair. Yeah. It's perfectly. These are all private capital. They can invest it where they want. But we don't have a better system yet for object, uh, uh, assessing objectively which startups are actually making progress and which ones are just doing this success theater. So that's why we, you know, people are constantly focusing on the vanity metrics, right? Now, at the early stage, at the early stage, that's true. Yeah, and the trouble is that VCs are forced nowadays to invest earlier than they, they used to because uh, otherwise yeah. they won't have a chance to get in and before Sorry, there are signs right. of traction. Yeah, and I think that we can do better than that. I mean, part part of the thing I argue for in my book and, and spend a lot of time trying to develop is I call it innovation accounting because mm-hmm. it needs a name, and which is just basically an alternate accounting system that is designed to tell if you're getting closer to this thing we call product market fit in an early stage company, way before the vanity metrics are going to be large enough to tell anybody that there's real success. Right. So if you think about the, the pivot from Odeo into Twitter, yeah, you know, when they had something like three or four hundred customers, that was a, that that was a restart, customers. wasn't it? I mean, there, there yeah, was nothing between Odeo and Twitter. There are no no two things come. The founders of those two products hated each other and fought like cats and dogs over which direction to yeah. go in. And in fact, when they when they had their like very earliest customers, I, we shouldn't even call it customers; they weren't paying very earliest users in the product. Um, the numbers were so small, they went back to a bunch of their investors and get, and offered them their money back. Yeah. Said, so, listen, you don't have to invest in this Twitter thing. It doesn't seem like it's going that well. Um, and a bunch of investors made the billion-dollar mistake of saying, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Take my money back. But now, now a lot of them feel well, quite bitter uh, about it, yeah. of course. Isn't, isn't <laughs> the it. cynical view on that that they knew this was going to be bigger and saw an opportunity to own a bigger piece of it? I've heard that. So the question is, how come the entrepreneur – if you believe in that theory, the cynical theory or the ignorance yeah. theory is the same – same question to me, which is, yeah. how is it possible that the investors, the supposedly savviest ones, um, given the data that they had available to them, couldn't see what the insiders could see? Why did the insiders believe when the investors didn't? The answer is that the insiders knew to look not at the vanity metrics, the gross numbers of customers, but rather the per customer engagement numbers, which were off the charts. Mm-hmm. And yet, all of us uh, who are you know in this ecosystem, we're all still generally trained to use traditional accounting metrics: ROI, profitability, you know, growth rates, the kind of stuff that doesn't matter for an early stage company. Um, and so, we I think if we if we as an ecosystem could adopt a better set of analytics around what constitutes progress, one that's denominated in validated learning, that's about uh, demonstrating scientifically that you're getting closer to product market fit. Because right now we think of it as like totally binary, you either have it or you don't have it. Mm-hmm. Then we'll be able to make the investment process in early stage companies much more meritocratic and much less uh, much less biased. So I mean I think as an ecosystem it's a really important change. It's just gonna take a little while. So here's our uh, pivot at, uh, we don't really have a pivot at um, Stack Overflow, at Stack Exchange. Um, but we've always assumed that we need to get from the community of programmers to other communities that huh? have, have questions and answers. <clears throat> and the examples that we give, both because they're um, awesome and because that's, it, it, you know, it's, it's sort of an end goal for us, is medical research, right? So we think that there are all these medical researchers, you know, MD, PhDs sitting there in pharmaceutical companies and in research institutions like Rockefeller University and the National Institute of Health, and they're sitting around doing research on medical problems. And um, they are, as far as we can tell, not using anything even remotely like Stack Exchange to right. help each other uh, with their research problems. Uh, they're just sort of a little bit behind the times. And, uh, uh, and the question is, how do you get to them? And, and that's kind of yeah. hard. And there's, there's a very fundamental problem with the Stack Exchange model, model that there's a critical mass. You need 200 people on a site before it, it starts to work. It, yep. we, we can't make it work with three people, and then hopefully we'll get four people tomorrow. Uh, mm-hmm. It just doesn't have that same critical mass massiness. Um, 
So we've always thought, listen, the way we're going to solve this is by what we call the overlapping circles idea, which is we have the circle of programmers that happens to not overlap with medical researchers at all. No, no, no. Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. Come on. Kevin Bacon. It's the, oh, sorry. Six <laughs> degrees of Kevin Bacon. Better than overlapping yes. circles. Yeah, yeah. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Um, so the uh, the programmers don't overlap uh, at all, but they do overlap with, and this is what we said when we were raising funds, we said, but a lot this of programmers- This has the ring of a good pitch to it. Yeah. But a lot of programmers are also photographers and chefs. So let's take the photographers and the chefs, and let's make a site for cooking and photography, and the programmers will come in there, but eventually they will start to attract people who are just plain old- Photographers don't know anything about programming, and those people, which we call civilians because they're not programmers in our <laughs> internal uh, definition, the civilians, some of them might, may be medical researchers, and eventually there will be enough of those people to say, hey, let's make a medical research site, and that's the overlapping circles idea about how we uh, branch essentially into other verticals. Mm-hmm. That's the theory. Um, you, you know the thing. The thing that surprised me, Joel, is it's, it's yeah. a little bit like founding a religion too, in some ways, because you want people to believe mm. that there's actually a better way, right? Like yeah. we have the form way, we have the yeah. traditional way of, of disseminating this information, but it's hugely, hugely flawed, and and you have to get people to believe that basically that there, there's something better than the current sort of belief systems that are on the internet. Yeah, and because it takes a lot of work. I mean, it's the the, the path of least resistance is to do the oh, traditional yeah. forum and it, it works like sort of like it works well enough that you can sort of point at it and say oh well this has the information it's a little work to get it out yes and <laughs> the ui is terrible and nobody can ever find anything but hey it kind of works right yeah. and you can have discussions about your favorite you know color of syringe and as you a can doctor. tell lots of exciting stories about your success rate of 20 yes. percent of getting answers to your questions right because that's, that's that's state of the art yeah and what yeah. you guys are describing is straight out of Jeff Moore. I mean, you know, after you cross the chasm, yes, crossing the chasm, then you have exactly. this, you know, whole bowling alley theory where, where the, you know, to get mainstream customers, you can't get everybody all at once. You got to find groups of mainstream customers who right. view your previous successes as validation and not alienation. And then, you know, you, as you rack up more wins, that helps you kind of go to the next level of early mainstream, et cetera. Right. And you know, yeah, it's to get to medical researchers is probably going to be several links in the it chain. Might be several links in the chain. So one of the interesting things that happened is uh, we. We, we were saying photography and cooking just because, you know, that's what we randomly thought. And indeed, those sites exist. We have 60-odd sites, but the one which seems right now poised to get us over the gap is gaming, believe it or not, yeah. uh, which is not a site that we're super-duper excited about because it's not something you do at work. You never really need to know the answer. I mean, it's a game. It's well, well, hold on, hold on, I'll back up. <laughs> so, uh, how, many, how many games are you playing? I, I, I know, but yeah. Actually, yeah. you know, the, the site is extremely helpful. I could not have gotten through Call of Duty um, uh, Black Ops or whatever it's called oh, yeah. without it. Or Angry Birds 3-15. So, uh, yeah, it has saved 314. my... 3-14. 3-14. 3-14. 3-15. Well, look, you know, look at that, Alex. <laughs> Joel, I had a lo- another observation to make about about gaming. Now, I've been... Yeah. Now, I, I love gaming, and I love games, but I'm... Yeah, that's what we say. Of, We're always like, we love games, but... Dot, and dot, I do. Dot. I mean, I'm not I'm saying... I mean, I was playing Battlefield right before this call, so believe me, I, when I say love games, I mean it. I really love games. Yeah. But... Let me give you an example. Like, so I've been following Battle Three and Battlefield Three, and I've gotten a little obsessive about it. So I went to the subreddit, which I hadn't spent. I mean, I spent some time on Reddit, uh-huh. but I had never really spent a lot of time on a subreddit. Now, there's some direct analogs here to some of the stuff we're doing, right? Like, a, there's a cooking site, there's a photography site, there's the site for programmers, there's the site for system administrators. Well, there's a place you go on Reddit. It's reddit.com/r/battlefield3, mm-hmm. and it's sort of everything Battlefield Three. And it's a filtered view of the topic. And one of the things that struck me about the gaming site, this is one of my criticisms, is generally the people who are into games like are really into certain games. 
you know, this idea of being a generalist, like when we look at server fault uh, and Stack Overflow, what we said was the best programmers are kind of generalists. Like they know multiple languages, they have interest in like regular expressions and stuff like that, which tend yeah. to be a concept that's expressed in multiple, like, you know, lambdas and things yep, like that. Yep. These exist across multiple languages, but I don't think you can really, and even for sysadmins, it's a much more uh, segmented uh, set yeah, you of like fields. The, like, like the Cisco your, world and the Novell world and the NT world. But you can make world. a credible case. Yeah. You can make a credible case that a good sysadmin actually knows Linux and Windows. I mean, kind of. I mean, it makes sense. But can you really make the case that like a person who loves Battlefield is going to love, say, Minecraft or... You know, or like I, there's some of these games honestly bore me to tears. There, like, but I, can't I mean, you know, I'm bored to tears by Java and I still go on Stack Overflow. So <laughs> yeah, true, true. But we don't, do we even have <laughs> anything in common? Right. Like, I mean, Minecraft is a game of creation. It's not a game of, as I like to say, blowing shit up. Like, honestly, I like to blow shit up. And the type of people yeah, who like who that like shit. are yeah. not at all like the type of people. They're like, oh, I'm going to spend three hours mining for this crazy core. <laughs> I mean, God, I mean, seriously, <laughs> kill me now. Like, I can't take it, right? Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't mean they're wrong. This is sort of weird. Argument, I mean, Jeff, I, I, last weekend I went to watch the, uh, or two weekends ago, it was Major League Gaming. And the games were StarCraft, which is mining a bunch of gold, um, Call of Duty, which is just a first-person shooter, and one more thing, I don't remember what the third one was. But it was uh, games that you might think are, are, are relatively, well, it was a sports game, I think, actually. So, so games that you would think are um, kind of far apart. Uh, and yet, they sort of all came together in this major league gaming um, thingamajiggy. Anyway, the only uh, the, I want to finish the story though. The, the, the end of the story is that we just look at statistics. We don't know. We made sixty something odd sites. How many do we have on Stack Exchange right now? Stack Exchange. Sixty six. Sixty six. Really? We should have a Route sixty six like a little party for the whole. You know, get get your kicks on Route sixty six. Um, that site is not um, displaying for me. StackExchange.com slash sites. It's, it's okay. Uh, 68. 68. Apple, <laughs> Apple is doing better. Um, some of them are doing pretty well. Yeah, Android's Apple and Ubuntu really are doing good. pretty well. But gaming is, is doing nicely, and it's growing pretty well. And we believe now, actually, that it's got this remarkable overlap between programmers, tons of whom yes. play games, and civilians. That's very true. So it's likely to be an excellent bridge thing. And it's not anything we could have predicted in advance or that we knew was going to be worth betting on. But when we made, when we allowed 66 sites to get created, one of them is just sort of emerging as likely mm -hmm. to be a very, very good bridge site. So we're going to kind of invest in it as such. In other words, try to figure out, like, all right, what do we have to do to make gaming uh, grow and, 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 and more awesome? And to go back to my earlier analogs, so I think Reddit is also attempting to cross the chasm, yeah. as you say, with the subreddits. And there's like a billion oh, geez, of these subreddits. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. They're, like, they're the big hidden secret behind. That's why Reddit has so much traffic. And there's also the other secret is there's a lot of <laughs> subreddits. <laughs> there, might be, there, that might be, there. there might be some uh, female breasts on, on Reddit yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Okay, uh, and, again, and, and it's I like possible. Reddit. It's possible. Any I'm not tool sure. on the internet yeah. will at some point be used for pornography. Or for emailing pornography, right? Wasn't that the, the technical it, law? Every tool will in some way Eventually. be used to spread pornography. I don't know. Not Stack Exchange. Well, human beings. At some point, are. it will be. You shouldn't, I you should not dare you. the internet. I dare well, well, We do have the human just, sexual yeah. response proposal. Yeah, exactly. that's going to be. Thank so you. And clinical. someone is going to be like, I'm trying this. Not. Here's a picture <laughs> of what I'm trying to do. Um, well, yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm, ro I'm rolling that back in. I'm pulling that back in. I was just using that as an example, but. Joel, if you're if you're if you're looking at example yeah, something, it started out very geeky, right? Reddit yeah. is still actually extremely geeky. I think we've been slightly more successful at being 
less kinky, uh, but it, it, it's still tough. And, and I think the Reddit model is a good one because I was enjoying this Battlefield 3 Reddit. Mm-hmm. I, I oh, yeah. don't like some aspects of it because there's a lot of noise on Reddit. In my they, are, they are. They're a lot like forums. There's a little bit of voting. Um, a lot of them are used as Q&A if you go into certain obscure ones. Right. Um, there's a bunch of Q&A. Like, yeah. in fact, I asked a Q&A because I needed to – I was doing a little Battlefield 3 giveaway. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out how to do that digitally, you know, what's the – easiest the most sensible way to get a digital copy of a game to someone uh, because it's not on steam which is the obvious choice for most gamers Mm -hmm. and i got a really good answer actually so it did work for me with that and it is a weird mixture of sort of links to other stuff and like what they call self questions of like just tell me some thing about the game i have some question about um, t- some of the people in the chat room uh, mentioned that the hardcore gamers tend to play a lot of games. It's really the casual gamers who just pick one thing that they like, um, like Minecraft or, or, or Sims or whatever. Those are what they consider casual gamers. But the hardcore gamers, and I think I agree with this, they, they, they play a lot of games. They play every game that comes out when it comes out until they're bored with it. And they'll, the hardcore gamers will even play a remarkable amount of Angry Birds You know, when they're just sitting on the subway with their iPhone. I love Angry Birds. You're not a hardcore gamer. I know, but I still love Angry Birds. Everybody loves go, Angry Birds. Move another two two miles away from the microphone. <laughs> it didn't it didn't deliver the depth of obsession I needed at all. It was much more of a generalist no, and it covers yeah. You know how, okay, the, the classic argument for a site is how much of the front page do you object to? This tells you if you're in the right place. <laughs> yeah. When I go to gaming, I object to a lot of the front page. What, and what and I'm not saying it's, it's wrong. I'm just saying I think that's going to be pretty typical. Board, yeah. That you're that's actually go there one of the like, things that we're working this on. This sucks. This sucks. This yeah. sucks. This sucks. Like, I, act, I actively object to these things existing on this site. So, what we, did we talk about this last week yeah. on the podcast? There's, there's some stuff where the, basically just the tags are kind of in the wrong order, so we can't really make a good... I mean, like, oh, there's a lot of Pokemon stuff going on here, for one. Jesus. Well, the big problem it's is we're, we're saying, like, strategy as Oof. the first tag instead of the name of the game instead as the, of the first name of the game. So, for example, yeah. there should be a Diablo 2 homepage. Uh, there should be a, um, um, uh, a Call of Duty kind of homepage um, that feels like Call of Duty. That, yeah. that has. When I, when I was playing World of Warcraft obsessively, I only wanted to go to the WoW wiki. Yeah, I did not right. want to be on any kind of general gaming site. That's, yeah. like, exactly that's not where the people right. I want to talk to. Yeah, wow, is a little bit. exactly my point. The, the, right, but we can effectively the, turn all of our tag wiki pages into, into those pages. Yeah. To those home pages, yeah. Like, I mean, we but have see, the what, technology for that. Uh, we just need we a few tweaks. Him. We yeah. have the technology. Yeah. But I, I would say that, you know, going all the way back to the to the topic of Pivot, you know, since uh, Mr. Sure. Pivot. Yeah. Um, Sorry. Do you ever get bored with that? Do you ever get bored I, being I, Mr. I just, get, I just got over it eventually. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Now it's like, you know what? Fine, we're just yeah. going to talk it's, about you it. Know, it's just like it's like William Shatner. It's like he still, yeah, exactly. people still say, just, beam me up Scotty to, to William Shatner when he's walking just around have, the you just mall. Have to, once you, once you uh, have people like saying that to you on the street, they have yeah. to be like, you know what? That's just how it is. Okay. Yeah. I, I accept it. So yes, I will accept all pivot jokes um, at all times. Um, but, but people think of a pivot like as, as being a mistake or a failure because often in the early stages, that's, that's how it manifests. But it's actually not necessarily a mistake. No. Uh, so th- th- as you guys, like if you think of the stages in Crossing the Chasm and the Bowling Alley and all those like cute names that, that Jeff Moore has, like all of those are pivots. Because mm-hmm. what, what you realize is that what used to work for you, the strategy you used to be pursuing, like was working great. And let's just imagine that your mainstream customers, um, they don't think of themselves as generalists. Like that, that could right. be a classic like idiosyncratic Asperger's-y programmer-y thing to do, where it's like generalism is good. Whereas maybe gamers or some other group is like, no, generalism is stupid. Like they're, they don't have anything in common with, with people just because we both play games. That's dumb. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really matter what you guys think. 
and it doesn't really matter Correct. what I think. Yeah. It matters only what the people who you, whose behavior you're trying to change, what they think. Yeah. So you may, you know, as you get to more and more mainstream customer segments, have to really change what the model is uh, in order to be able to repeat it successfully. Well, I can certainly see that's, to me, that's a compelling argument for basically the filtered view of the site, that I really yeah. only want to see that subset of the game that I'm currently obsessing over. Yeah, currently. There, there is, that, that is I, true. That's what uh, David pointed out. Uh, th- I don't know if he did it on the podcast, but he said if you are playing a game, you will go on to Stack Exchange. You'll want to see all questions about that game and just read them all because that's fun, which you're very rarely going to go on to Stack Overflow and say, I want to see all the JavaScript questions and just sit there and read them. <laughs> right, some, right. some people do actually do that, Joel. I mean, I've had people come up to me at the dev days and said they yeah. just went through a tag and they were learning. So they would try yeah. to answer every question, look at every question on that particular tag. So it does happen. Yeah. But you I, may I'm also find more... that, that, that you may need, but you may need more structure also. Like you know, I could, you know, especially in a game that's that's laid out in a linear fashion, um, you may need to. It, it may not count. It may not be good enough just to show people a filtered view. They might still have that feeling of being a second class citizen, or like this isn't a site for me, and they may still want to go to a site where the like from top to bottom, <laughs> the way it's branded, what it's called, like says right. you are like this is the Call of Duty place. Like come here. That's and the classic like argument this. for the way we launch sites. I mean, that's why we have the cooking exactly. site looks yeah. like a place for cooks. So I can see that point as well. I, I th- it, it's tough. It's just, you know, how do you draw the line? And, you know, it, it's in different places for different people. But for me with gaming, I feel kind of very strongly that you tend to pick a certain game that you're into and you, you obsess over it for a while. You may move on to other games. But during that period, it's like I really only want to see... Game. I mean, I could see, like, okay, I'm a shooter fan, right? I play Battlefield 3. So I don't object to seeing stuff about other shooters. Like, I don't necessarily object to Call of Duty uh, appearing in my stream. But, you know, Pokemon, I kind of object to. Well, and if you think about the game elements of Stack Exchange, like the badges and the levels and the points, like, the, the big question is, to somebody who is obsessed with Call of Duty, will they see someone who gained their status through Pokemon questions as legitimately having the same level as them? And if the answer to that question is no, then it's fundamentally not going to work to have them be in the same ranking system. But if the answer is yes, then it probably will work. That's where I would. That's the focal point I would be fixated on. Hmm. Just, just to be clear, I think this is the most endemic on gaming. There's, there's stuff about gaming that makes this a particular problem there. I, I'm looking at our site list. I don't think there's any other site where I feel that this is... I think this is really unique, in my opinion, to to, to You mean because, to gaming. well, gaming, we tried to make it a relatively wide um, ecumenical site for all gamers. Uh, which we never, I don't think we ever did that with any other, but you're, you're not noticing it, but it happens on answers.onstartups.com. And one of the reasons why that site is sometimes weird is because you get somebody trying to set up a beauty salon in Zimbabwe and you know, we don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't right. know why it's, it's pretty broad. Not, it's a, it's, it is a startup. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. But, uh, so well, again, you know, is it a profession? I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, I, I, I don't want to rehash right. stuff. Let's, I mean, I, I like gaming. Gaming is cool. It's an experiment. We're running an experiment. I will continue to ask and answer, you know, Battlefield. Whatever games I'm actually playing, I will certainly talk about there. One of the things that's interesting, Jeff, about Reddit is that they do pretty well with really tiny subreddits that have, like, three people participating in them and get one post every month. Not that they do well, but, I mean, they sort of they, they sort of survive. They, survive. they, they turn over. Yeah. yeah. And that allows them to have kind of a lot more granularity of conversation. So if you just become a mega Reddit fan, you, you suddenly realize, wait a minute, there's going to be a, meta, a, a Reddit for my thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'll go in there and you'll find the two other people talking about quilting, and you'll be the third person to talk about quilting, and you'll have a lot of fun talking about quilting on Reddit. And uh, right. whereas we have such, yeah. a, such a long process before we would allow anybody to talk about quilting just to make sure that there's going to be a good conversation. 
Yeah, critical mass is you know the Area 51 mm -hmm. process. Um, somebody in the chat room asks if we've ever considered splitting up games or startups. That is one of the problems that we have. Um, I think I wrote both blog posts. Like one one blog post I wrote said your your, your site should be really broad, and the other one said your site should be really <laughs> narrow. And like, yeah. our biggest problem is trying to figure out what what the right scope for a site is. And I think that. The best answer that we follow these days is if you can imagine an encyclopedia of X, then then that would be it. So there is an encyclopedia of gaming, not a book. So if it's book length material, like there is a book about Call of Duty, but there wouldn't be That's an encyclopedia small. of Call of Duty, right? Right. But there, but you could imagine the encyclopedia of all games. You know, like it'd be twenty four volumes on a shelf, alphabetically. But there wouldn't be like okay, so this game Bulletstorm, which is a semi popular shooter that came out, but it's kind of obscure. Like nobody's there's no encyclopedia of Bulletstorm, right? There's no like Call right. of Duty is like a whole thing. World of Warcraft is a whole thing. World of Warcraft you could could have an encyclopedia. Could be an encyclopedia. Of World. Yeah. I mean, what you guys are doing, which I think is really unique, is inviting your customers to participate in your customer segmentation mm -hmm. process. This question of like what constitutes a segment and what constitutes a market, these conversations are normally happen in private, um, in secret in most companies because they all have this problem. You want to put out a marketing message. You want to put it in the right magazines. You want to alienate just the right people. You want people to you know the right kind of people to resonate with your thing, and that necessarily excludes other people. Mm -hmm. And so that's usually a very secretive, very complicated, very messy process. And you guys, it's still complicated and messy, but you're also doing it in public, which I think is super cool. Yeah, we don't necessarily have a good mechanism though of arriving at. I mean, we do it in public, but then we have to manually go and say, no, the guitar people have to be with the piano people. <laughs> like, somebody has to do that. Like, the, the, we, don't, we don't actually have an automatic mechanism by which the magically correct size sites fall out at the end. You know, I had a thought, Joel, that one of the mm -hmm. reasons that the subreddits can be smaller is mm -hmm. because they're so conversational. Whereas we suppress conversation. We're like, no, 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 this is not a conversation. Right. This is serious business, right? We're here to... We're here to That's learn right. facts about things. We're here to do science, basically. We need more, um, so we need a larger. Is, that is a much harder thing to do. Like, I was thinking, yeah. okay, I got to ask you a question about Battlefield on gaming. And I actually have some questions that I could ask that are completely legit. But there's a bar. It's not just go in and just, oh, isn't isn't it cool how you can vault over obstacles in Battlefield? And other people say, yes, that's very cool. Yeah. And here's a screenshot of me doing it. And on, yeah. and on Reddit, that's perfectly, perfectly acceptable. But on our site, that would be like closed, right? <laughs> yeah. So no, the reason we can't have... about what you don't do, but what yeah. you refuse to do. Right. Yeah. Well, of course. No, no, no. We're very strict about this for a reason because the, we think the output creates this really useful artifact for everyone if, if you can again the religion right you have to get the religion of we're here to do things that matter right that are going to produce useful artifacts for other people and a discussion of how cool vaulting is i mean it's just it's just you know it's a chat it's not wrong but it's it's not what we do you'd be happy so, to send people to reddit to have that conversation uh yeah we do i mean I, i'm going to reddit rather than gaming for a lot of the information i'm getting i'm, I'm going to port some of it back over because i want to ask questions about it but it's, it's a different experience. It's interesting. It's a really interesting compare and contrast because I had not spent a lot of time on subreddits. Um, okay, enough about that. What else is new? Actually, I, I, I do. Um, uh, we're sort of running out of time. So, Eric, we traditionally talk about sort of news of Stack Overflow at the end of the call. Cool. Um, so, uh, and normally, see, when Jeff is not on vacation, he would be telling me all the cool stuff that he did this week. Um, <laughs> and, but now I have to tell him all the cool stuff I've been doing. I bought a dishwasher. You can tell me how it's going. Yeah, and tell you how it's going. Yeah. Um, uh, so, I, I have decided to get deeply involved, not deeply involved, I have decided to, to, to attack the, we have this thing called the moderator queue, of flag queue, 
of things that um, that have been flagged by our users for moderators to look at and work on. It now mm-hmm. has 244 things um, that, that we have to look at. And um, just because I'm a nerd, I've also, um, I'm also sort of analyzing every single thing that gets flagged in the system and why it got flagged and, and why all these people believe like they need to. Whoa, there's new stats there. Hey, those just arrived. That's like a brand new thing. Didn't Mark Revelle just do that? He did. Awesome. I don't know. Check it out, Jeff. Moderator flags. This little. Sta- oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. So. Remember, you made my vacation. You just added like a week to, to my vacation. He's trying to trick you, Jeff. <laughs> I'm sorry. I won't listen to you, Joel. I won't listen to your lies. <laughs> so, uh, so the moderator queue is uh, large and, and painful, and consists of many painful decisions that moderators have have to make. Which reminds me of something we mentioned last week, which is the Israeli parole boards. That as time went on, they just sent more and more people to the to the, to the electric so chair. Yeah. <laughs> later, later in the day, it was they're like, I'm kind of hungry. Electric chair. <laughs> Just because they were so sick and tired of making decisions, they started making. Essentially, they took the default decision, uh, you know, um, more more frequently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just hard to decide. Uh, Another psychological bug. Yeah. So, um, and one of the problems that we have essentially is that we're trying to create a site that moderates itself. And one of the ways we do that is we, uh, you know, we 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 have elections and people become moderators and then they have to do some of this cleanup work. And uh, I think there are a few flaws in that system. Mainly, one of the things that Jeff said to me, which sort of surprised me, is that uh, one of the moderators does about half of the work uh, on the site, which is a typical uh, a typical. power curve thing but if we could just get you know a couple more moderators to chip in uh, the amount of work yeah. would go down dramatically uh, right. so i've been sort of focusing on trying to figure out what the things are that come up come up frequently in in, in moderation and, and what the uh what the what the common themes are this there's, there's a couple of things that i've noticed i've been talking to the core team about it a little bit and they're already starting to get fixed um but uh, you know one thing which i've noticed is that uh, there's a tendency to pile on people that just don't speak English natively, uh, or to or to or to flag those things because you get angry with them and they sort of say, "Well, that's low quality." Um, and usually it's a combination. It's it's usually either uh, the person asking the question is not a native English speaker, or the person answering the question is a relative beginner at programming. Wait, um, wait, wait. You you hold on. But are usually you sure you're a combination not using, Are you sure it's not the rose-colored glasses? I mean, did they put effort into the question? It's fine. It's fine if the spelling is wrong and all that stuff. But did yeah. they put effort into their question? Because uh, I want to be clear about that. Sure. Yes. Usually, okay. yes. No. Okay. I'm just, as I, long I, as I, they put effort in, because usually that comes along with no effort. It's uh, really common. They, uh, yeah. You, and and then you just say, okay, forget it. This is worthless. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If they've done the work, if they've contributed, if they've met us, you know, twenty-five to thirty percent of the way, then fine. Those are well. That that's actually kind of interesting because you just gave me a metric that I wasn't really aware of that there's a simple formula. <laughs> like one of the problems with moderating is that it takes a long time to learn like what the consensus is on, on the site. And there are a few areas of ambiguity. So for example, people see homework questions and they flag them for moderators. And the moderators, I think, have different views probably on whether homework is acceptable or not. And so what that right. means is that it becomes a decision for the moderator when it probably doesn't have to. Like we could just say, you know what, the rule is homework's okay as long as you tag it homework, done. The well, end, or whatever. Uh, yeah, effort still has to factor into it. Okay, like, well then you that can't be just the rule. post your homework and say solve my homework for me. Yeah, you have to. You have fine. to say show what you did. Here, here's what I tried to do. Yeah. Well, you, well, you, need, you need a policy that people can apply consistently. Well, that's what it is. Is it's not even that they can apply consistently. It's that there's a, there's a lot of ambiguity. And the decisions are kind of hard, and there are good answers which you're giving me now, Jeff, and, and I know most of them, uh, and you can figure them out, and you can you can browse meta and eventually learn them, uh, and then you can it can become easier and easier to moderate. Um, but 
but some of those things are things where it's making the kind of the the, the mental load on on a newbie moderator so high that, that you, people you you might maybe, even schedule a call with some of the the really active moderators. Yeah, I, actually, Joel, that might be a good idea for you. I have just been, to schedule uh, a call, maybe you, the community team, and sort of the the really the most active moderators on Stack Overflow because they're the ones you know really doing the work. So, right. and to be honest, like whenever I see a meta, I don't I don't go to Meta right now because I'm on Rum Springer, yeah. but. When I see a request from a from a high ranking moderator, it does get prioritized. Like I, I realize that, that these people are doing a lot to make our system work, and I do not take their requests lightly. Sure. Um, and continuing in that in that trend, maybe you know have a call where yeah. people can just you know. One sound of the off. Um, I'll give you another do, example. Uh, hey, do moderators yeah. level up? They're at the ultimate leveling up. That's as leveled up as they can get before we hire them. As a you know, before there, we get there's them no a job. moderator. There's no levels of moderators. Uh, there are. Yeah, there are actually there are. Um, there's uh, um, basically 10,000 rep users start to have lots of moderation capabilities. As you work your way through the system, you start to get more and more abilities to do things, which are kind of lightweight moderation abilities. Sometimes it might just be like voting on whether or not a question can be closed, and you earn the right to do that. I think at 3,000. Um, so as you as you pass certain point thresholds, you start to earn the right to do things, um, and you can earn m- most of the mod privs by ten thousand, I think. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of sort of more advanced stuff for when you actually get elected to be a moderator. And then, um, like I say, some of the moderators have been hired by the company <laughs> and they work for right. us. Meta moderators, essentially moderating the moderators. Yeah. Uh, so there is definitely this uh, ascension and level- leveling up kind of concept, which is. Um, Awesome and cool. Well, but, we also um, put the stats together, Joel. That's new. That came out in the last couple of months. Was for a long time there was you had no idea how much work who, the moderators, the moderators were, doing. were doing. There was no visibility really into it. You just did it or you didn't do it. Yeah. Uh, but we we now when you go to the moderation page, there's sort of a, a page that just says you know here's what everybody did over the last week, month, quarter. Day. Yeah. Yeah. And you can sort of see because you know the point you're making that you know one of the moderators was doing the lion's share of the work um, was we hadn't invisible. noticed. Yeah. Until three months ago. So uh, one of the um, let's see, I'm, I'm tr- trying to think of what my what the other things that that I noticed were. Um, there's sort of well, it's th- good to ha- it's good to think about this because, uh, but also to be clear, this is only really a problem on Stack Overflow. Sure. No other site, even oh, our yeah, big yeah, secondary sites, it's a, it's a non-issue. They get like 10, right. 20 flags a day. Who cares? It's easy. It's trivial. Yep. But this is very specific to Stack Overflow. I do think it helps all the sites, but I just want to be clear that like. There's some scaling thing that kicks in when you get to the enormous size, size of Stack Overflow that causes these particular problems. It's not normally an issue on any other site. Right, right. Doesn't make it a non-nation. It's still a serious problem, of course. But well, ho- hopefully, your Stack Overflow is the canary that will tell you where everything else is headed, so you can be ready. Yeah, and I'll tell you, it if you do be. a graph line to see how long it's going to take super users, <laughs> it to might be eight years. I'm not sure I'll be alive. Then. <laughs> It's, uh, uh, those sites are great. Don't get me wrong; they're doing really, really well. But like, there's this thing of like the blockbuster. It's like in you know pharmaceutical companies; they have the tent. one blockbuster drug that makes billions of dollars, and then they just have everything else, right? It's kind of like that. Um, but you still want to diversify. You don't want to be you know the company that has just one site, and that's a large reason we're doing what we're doing. Also, because you know I legitimately want to improve the quality of information on the internet. Uh, but there is, if you look at the stats, you can go to StackExchange.com sites. It's it's pretty staggering if you run the numbers of our largest site versus all the other sites combined. <laughs> so, um, Jeff, tell me what you think about this. One of the things that we had, oh, uh, a frequent tag that I w- a frequent flag that I was seeing was not a real answer. Uh, and there are several common reasons why something is not a real answer. The first is that it, it should be a comment and should have been converted to a comment. 
Uh, another one is that it's it's a me too, and a, and a third one is it's just kind of random conversation. Um, but at the time of the flag, we don't really capture that knowledge. So, um, so the mod has to basically decide, am I going to change this to a comment? Am I going to delete it? Or most likely you're just going to delete it, right? Cause you're lazy. Um, or am I going to, um, you know, try to figure it out by reading the whole post and figuring out where it goes and blah, blah, blah. So one of the things I was thinking of is if you make that something that the flagger, ha- you know, has to, or, or optionally can include in their flag, like I would sure. like to flag this, then essentially you're telling the flagger, all right, give me your prescription. And then all I have right. to do is check it to see if it's right. I don't have to decide. I just have to check. No. Yes, I think indeed, that's a great this idea. Is me too. That's so, a great uh, idea because basically you're just moving friction from the moderators who have a ton of friction already to the, to the people community. flagging. Yeah, who, which who I are, think is fun. Just avoid yeah. the ten thousand bulleted list phenomenon of like, here's the twenty reasons you could flag this post. Like, right. I don't want it to. It can become be optional. Like, it can be optional, but it's just it. It just can't. if you look at the people that are flagging actually, which I do a lot of to see who they are. Sometimes it's a drive-by flagger. But a lot of it, they're people that are trying to improve their flag weight, and they're doing this as an activity because we have this additional game that we made up called flag weight. Uh, right. And and that those group of people, um, if you give them shit to do, they'll do it. <laughs> like you know, right. they're they're happy to do stuff for us. And so that's kind of an opportunity to move some of the cognitive pain from the moderators onto uh, you know to spread it out. So probably what I would recommend there is just have a drop down. I would actually make it mandatory. I think you should have to make that decision because we do want to move some of the weight of flagging off right. the moderators onto the community. And, and if you're gonna if you're gonna flag something, you should have a reason, like a, a detailed reason of why you flag this. And yeah. that I think your the logic is completely sound. Just avoid adding any more uh, radio buttons. More than sixteen. The other yes. thing, I more keep... than twenty five radio buttons is well, probably too many. Yeah. Well, I keep <laughs> coming back to there's certain things where. Um, this is sort of another theme is that things get flagged, they show up to moderators right away, but sometimes they cure themselves because the users then have a conversation in the comments and they go back and they fix their question to make it be, you know, on, off topic doesn't cure itself, but it show me some sample code and then it gets flagged as low quality and then they add the sample code and now it's a good question. So um, you can just clear those, but you almost want to give them a, an hour or so to <laughs> try to clear themselves first before a moderator spends time thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um Maybe, and, but if it's something more urgent... Well, if it's urgent, then it's urgent, and that's like spam or... I mean, but these things are... Yeah, urgent. those are pretty rare. Yeah. That's true. Uh, One of the things that we did uh, for moderation at InView was we had a system where basically, like, multiple lower-level moderators would all be asked the same to, to weigh in, and if everybody agreed, it would just be closed out the way they thought, and it would only be escalated to a higher-level person yeah. if they didn't agree. We, we already We have a little bit of that, that, but not enough. We could do more of that. Like, if we have three people... Um, flagging something as a me too answer, just automatic. You know, as long as their flag weight is high enough and it doesn't have any upvotes, we can just automatically delete it before mm-hmm. we show it. And we don't even have to show it to a moderator until there's you know maybe two flags or. Uh, I, I support that as long as there's a minimum flag weight. You right, know, right. like if, if it's say three people, different people, and uh, they have a minimum flag weight, I could support that. We and have it's not loads like of an invasive one. Yeah. But because... even what you want is for you want basically to be able to train your junior moderators to learn the tastes of the senior moderators so that the senior moderators aren't doing all the work. Exactly. And that's actually kind of hard to learn. And we were talking about that earlier today. We don't have that official way of doing that. And I, I, I pushed some wrong button when I was learning how to moderate and all the people yelled at me in the meta. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's very hard for me. I mean, I can look at, and there's ways of doing that. Like I can sit there and I can watch what our top moderators who are right now, Bill the Lizard and Tim Post, I can watch what they're doing uh, and, and try to learn um, how to uh, uh, moderate moderate from from what they've done but in some areas i don't completely agree with them actually i'm I, maybe i'm more of a libertarian as to what i think can be rec- 
should be it. Well, as long as you're willing to do the work. See, this is the problem. It's like, right. okay, yeah, if you, Joel Spolsky, are going to sit down and rewrite all these bad posts for Could six hours, post. sure. Awesome. Go for, <laughs> Go for it. Well, that's one of the things is I want to say to people, like sometimes people flag something and they say, this is not a good question. And, and, and I'll just reject it saying the only problem with this question is that the English is not grammatical. So just fix it. So don't waste my time, please. Like that's sort but of my attitude not, towards it. It's not really, I think, okay. No, but it's well, a good question that we want to be there. It's a, it's a, it's a, you need to make a case that it's a good question. I mean, most of the time when I see this, I would say 90% of the time or more, it's not, it's not a good, good question. Enough, it's not a good enough question. It needs to be a good question. I mean, you have to put, okay, where's the burden? We're talking about moving the friction around in the system. Yeah. I think a lot of the friction, honestly, is on the person asking. Yeah, the person so, asking the other thing needs is that, to The other thing suck. that I think would be neat to do is to have, we have vote to close, but there could be, I, I, I still feel like there's another kind of limbo other than close. Cl close just feels sort of permanent to people, even though we know it's not. Like, I, I want to say, um, well, imagine this. Hold on. Imagine this. Imagine that you could flag something as not a good question, and then you could check off reasons, and you might say, need sample code, or your English sucks, or there's too much code. You didn't you know, minimize. You just pasted your entire project file into project directory into here. Um, or you didn't do enough work, or I don't even understand what you're asking here. And if it gets two or three of those flags from people with a high enough weight, it's it, the, the question is hidden. Nobody can see it. Nobody knows about it. And it's going to get deleted or closed in a month. And you have a chance as the person asking the question, or you have an obligation, a burden to fix it. Mm, I don't know. You got to be careful there because really the volume of questions we get on Stack Overflow, it's okay to throw 10% of them away. 10% of them probably should be thrown away, to be perfectly honest with you. Because you're getting, uh, let me expand this. How many questions per day now? 4,000 questions per day. <laughs> How many of those 4,000 do you think really needed to be asked and were actually worthy of being asked? Now, Fine. there's two arguments for me. One yeah. is, okay, first it's a long tail problem. I was going to tell Eric about this. The reason we don't have enough flagging and enough voting is because not enough people at the volume that we have are looking at your post. So there's not enough signal. There's not enough people that see it and are willing to click flag or vote yeah, that's good. or can even have the ability to do that because voting requires 15 rep, flagging requires 15 rep, downvoting requires 125 rep. Um, so every time, my feeling is, Joel, every time you get that little bit of signal, somebody felt pretty strongly because mm -hmm. clicking flag takes effort. You have to think. You're like, okay, I'm flagging. Then you have to pick a reason for flagging, yeah. maybe even a sub-reason. Yeah. Like people just don't do that because they're bored. Yes, they want flag weight, but generally they do it. Like whenever I see flags, it's so rare to see a flag that was just, okay, I was bored and I clicked flag. I mean, I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've seen a flag where I was like, I had no idea why it was flagged. Like usually when there's a flag, where there's smoke, there's fire. There's something wrong there. People aren't just doing this out of boredom because the, the path of least resistance is to do nothing and just let the questions fall away into the distance, right? Nobody looks at it. Nobody cares. It never gets answered. Maybe that's the correct outcome, Joel. Mm -hmm. Maybe for some of these questions, it's not that they need to be fixed. They just need to Die. quietly go away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We actually, um, another, uh, that sort of leads to, well, okay, I got a whole bunch of things. I could talk about this for days, but we're kind of out of yeah, time we, and Eric yeah. has to go. Um, but that was enough about flagging. We'll talk about that more in the future. Well, it's good that you're looking at this because it's, it's a big problem on Stack Overflow. It's, it's just the scale is so hard yeah. to deal with. Don't worry. I'll go, go get it all fixed up for you. Uh, <laughs> Eric, Nobody on vacation should be thinking about it. Your book is number one in the New York Times bestseller list. I don't know if that's true, but I'm going to say that it is. Oh, my it, God. i got to buy this book. Um, uh, everyone, everyone's got to buy the book ASAP. It actually startup. peaked at number two while we're being, uh, we're being accurate. That's pretty friggin' impressive for a computer book. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Sorry, I know it's not a computer book. Uh, Lean Startup by Eric Reese, who is also Eric Reese R I E S on the Twitter at 
E R I Eric with a C. There's so many different ways your name could be spelled. It is, yes. It could be R U I Z, for example. Um, but it's not. Uh, where's your website? TheLeanStartup.com. The Lean Startup. What Gosh. I hope Lean Startup isn't something about meat. <laughs> Probably is. <laughs> God only knows. TheLeanStartup.com. Eric Reese, thank you for being with us. Podcast number hey, twenty four. Twenty four. And next week we have Mark Rusina Rusinovich. Is that yes, how you Mark pronounce Rusinovich it? Oh, next week. Nice. Awesome. The, the people, the, the the hardcore programmers know who that is. He's been Jeff has been begging for Mark. Maybe for we can get weeks. him to fix our stupid garbage collection problem, or is that is he, oh, is he too low t- level? I have a total I have a total man crush on Mark Rusinovich. He's so awesome. <laughs> uh, so that that'll be next week and uh, we'll see you then. All right. Okay. Bye, Bye everybody. Take Bye, care, guys. Eric.